All right. If you have your Bibles, turn over to John 20. While you're turning there, let me give you a trajectory of where this message is going. Many today preach that salvation is one and the same as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They preach that Pentecost was the birth of the church. And in doing this, they eviscerate the uniqueness of the baptism and also nullify the power of the Spirit and also the gospel. Let me read to you what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 1.5. He writes, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance or conviction. See, the gospel isn't just a creed. It's not ascribing to some kind of affiliation, political. But when you fail to take in the framework of redemption and adjudge it right or rightly divide it, you nullify the power of the gospel. And we're going to see that as we go through this message. Now, going to John 20, let me set this scene up for you before we dive into the scripture. Because John 20 deals with the day that Jesus was resurrected. Deals with what you would call Easter or Resurrection Day. The third day. Now before then, if you recall that Jesus celebrated what we call the Lord's Supper with the disciples, it was a Passover. But it was a different kind of Passover because their leader, this man that Peter had called the Messiah, held up bread and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat it. And when they ate it, they were pledging their loyalty to him. Because what? His body was broken for them. And we do the same. Now, he took the cup, and he did the very same thing. He said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Take and drink it. And when they did, they were pledging their allegiance to him. You know, the modern church hasn't, hasn't really preached or drilled down into the significance of the Lord's Supper for those disciples at the table. What it really meant, what Jesus was really doing in that supper when he was requiring of them their undying loyalty. But that's what they did. And then after the supper, what did they do? They went out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And while Jesus was in the garden, the authorities came to arrest him. And if you recall, Peter pulls out his sword and he starts swinging because, hey, the revolution was on. It is time to start taking the kingdom for God. And Jesus turned to him and said, put your sword away. And you know, for the disciples, it was pretty much game over then. Why? Because they didn't die as martyrs. Their leader wasn't even a martyr. Their leader, to them, caved. And the authorities took him and then took him over to the Romans to be crucified. And if you know anything about Deuteronomy 21, you saw, well, you see, just how horrific being crucified was in the nation of Israel. 
because he became a curse. So as a disciple then, your leader that you pledged your undying loyalty to wasn't just arrested, wasn't just, you know, humiliated, but he was crucified as a curse of your own God. Now, we go into John 20. At the very first part of the chapter, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb and she finds that it's empty. She reports it to the disciples and they come running and they look in the tomb and they see it's empty and they go back and they don't have any idea what's going on. John writes this in verse 9, For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. And so this is where we pick it up in verse 19. It's the very same day. It's later that night. John writes this. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were, sent, were assembled for fear of the Jews. Of course they had fear of the Jews then. Why? Because the man that they had pledged their loyalty to was found by the Jews to be the traitor. And now he's dead. So the Jews are going to come after them now. And so they hold themselves, they go into hiding. They lock the doors. And you can see the scene here where all the disciples are gathered together and they're quiet. They're listening for any noise whatsoever. They're looking at the doors. They're jumpy. Why? Because they could be next. And then what happens? Then came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Now let this sink in, because we read through it, we don't think anything about it. The disciples were scared as anything of the Jews. And then this man that they had followed, that they had known to be crucified, in fact, his body had been taken down and put into a tomb, and they knew that the soldiers had come and pierced his side. All of a sudden, in the blink of an eye, he's standing right before him, And he's standing there with the wounds of crucifixion in his body. And in another gospel, he says to them, Handle me, for, for a ghost hath not flesh and bones as you see me have. How weird that scene is, because it's never, ever happened before. It's never happened in the history of mankind that anybody's been resurrected from the dead like this. Even carrying the wounds... So I imagine that once the disciples pick themselves up and stopped rubbing their eyes and checked with one another, do you see what I see? Are you kidding me? Is this the real deal? John writes, and then the disciples were glad 
when they saw the Lord. Now, then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. Now let's unpack that a minute. Jesus says, as the Father hath sent me. You go back in the Greek and it's in the perfect tense. What's that mean? That means that there was an event in the past that has or carries ramifications for the present and even the future. And we know that from the death, burial, and resurrection. Because it's by his death, burial, and resurrection that men can be born again. Men can see the kingdom of God. They can become children of God once again. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, even so send I you. And send is in the present tense. That means that it's nonstop. He's sending, and the sending is consistent. It's, it is ongoing. And that's because he's sending, what? From one generation to another, to another, to another. And that becomes significant as we get further in the message. Verse 22 is the verse I want to get to. It is, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Now, take into account what is happening here. He is the resurrected Lord. He's been resurrected from the dead, and he says to them, he breathes on them. Now, all the translations say breathed on, but when you get back to the original language, it's breathe into. He breathed into them and said, receive ye the Holy Ghost. Now, that is an imperative, receive ye the Holy Ghost. Some preachers have said, well, this is symbolic of Pentecost coming down in the future said, well, no, it isn't. When you go back to the language, it's a present imperative. It's kind of like a parent saying to, you know, his kid, go clean your room. The parent doesn't mean, the father doesn't mean, go clean your room next week, go clean your room in 10 days. He means go clean your room now. That's a present imperative. You have the very same thing here. Receive ye the Holy Ghost in the here and the now. Well, what is Jesus doing here? What he's doing is he's reenacting Genesis, the creation of man. We're in the Gospel of John, and John starts out his Gospel saying, in the beginning. When you flip back to Genesis, Genesis starts out and says, in the beginning. Now, you go back to Genesis, and you read the creation account. And the creation account is God creates creation in six days. He creates the birds of the air, the cattle, fish of the sea, the land, everything. But then when he gets the man, he does something that's very different and unique. And we read, we read it in Genesis 2.7. It reads, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground... He had done that before. He created things from the dust of the ground. But then here it says, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became 
a living soul. God breathed into mankind his own spiritual materiality. Hebrews calls him the father of spirits. And this is where man became a spiritual being, like God himself. When you take uh, that phrase, living soul, and you go through the progressive revelation all through the New Testament, you understand that man is both a natural creature and a, and a spiritual creature all at the same time. Now, when you go back to John, where Jesus is breathing into them, you see that he's reenacting Genesis 2.7. Paul says that Jesus was made alive again in the Spirit through his resurrection. He had been made sin on the cross, but then he was made alive again in the Spirit. And then what's he do here in John? He breathes into them, and they all become new creations in Christ. Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Receive ye God's own Spirit. Let me read to you 1 Corinthians 15.45. Paul writes this, And so it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. Said the last Adam, meaning Jesus, was made a quickening spirit. You go back in the Greek, and it's a life-making spirit. And that's what he's doing here in John. He's making eternal life. He's creating the Spirit of Christ within them. New creations in Christ, being born from above, the way he described it to Nicodemus in John 3. Now, what's interesting is this. The disciples are born again. But then we continue to read in John, and we read something that is really kind of curious and peculiar. Let me read starting... Uh, Verse 24, but Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We've seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Well, except I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, notice the next verse. And after eight days again, his disciples were within, and Thomas was with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Now, Jesus appears to them eight days after the first time. Only Thomas is with them this time. But notice that the disciples they, they have all received the Holy Spirit. They've become born again, but they are still shut up in that room again eight days later. Now, Jesus has said to them the first time, as the Father hath sent me, so send I you. Well, they're not going anywhere, or they haven't gone anywhere, have they? Even though they've been saved. You see, they are still looking inward. They are still looking unto themselves even though they've been saved. And you see that in the modern church. Churches that don't believe in the baptism as a second definite experience, most of the time their focus is not outward on spreading the gospel. It's becoming perfected within the gospel. 
And you see that here reflected in Scripture because they are still in hiding. Now, you keep that in mind, and then we turn over to the book of Acts. Go over to Acts 2, and we're going to read from chapter, um, from verse 1. It reads there, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, now let me stop there and say, Jesus now has ascended up to heaven. We see that in Acts 1. Here in Acts 2, it said, When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. Now notice verse 4. Take this in. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Notice that they all were filled with the Holy Ghost. Now, skip down to verse 14. It says, But Peter standing up with the eleven. Now, when you read the account, you understand that on the day of Pentecost, 120 followers of Christ were filled with the Spirit. When you get to verse 14, you understand that Peter was in that number. You also understand that the 11 were in that number. Now, from what we, were, what we read in John 20, the disciples had received the Holy Ghost in John 20, right? I mean, we see that, receive ye the Holy Ghost. And they were also instructed uh, to, to be sent out. And they didn't go out. Now here, the scriptures say that they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and that includes Peter and the eleven. Second definite experience. A second definite operation of the Holy Spirit. Remember back in John's Gospel, that Jesus said, it's expedient, talking to his disciples. He said, it's expedient for you that I go away, because then the Spirit of truth will come, whom the world cannot receive. There he was talking about the baptism of the Spirit. But the baptism of the Spirit can't come upon those who are unregenerate, those of the world, whom the world cannot receive has to become, he can only come upon those who have been saved, who have been recreated with the Spirit of Christ. And so you see that with John 20. They were recreated. And then they have this second definite experience. And notice how this second definite experience, this baptism, changed them. Because instead of holding up like they had been before, Will they stand up? Listen to verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, you can see this. You can see this in your mind. They're standing up, lifted up his voice, and said unto them, You men of Judea. Who's he speaking to? Speaking to the Jews. He's not fearing the Jews anymore. He's speaking to them. He's got spiritual boldness now. And that's what the baptism did. Jesus said, 
When you receive power from on high, you shall become my witnesses or shall be my witnesses unto the end of the earth. And you see that played out here in Acts 2.14. Peter was with the disciples being holed up in John 20. And now in Acts 2, he stands up and he starts preaching in the midst of what? In the midst of his enemies. Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. That's a man with spiritual boldness. That's a man who's speaking the gospel with some power. The power of being a witness. Now, let's go through another portion of Acts to show this dichotomy, to show this second definite experience. Go over to Acts chapter 8. And we're going to talk about the Samaritans. In verse 5, we read this. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. So he's preaching the gospel. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, meaning that they are becoming saved. They're getting saved by his preaching. Hearing and seeing the miracles which he did, for unclean spirits crying out with loud voice came out of many that were possessed. And many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Going down to verse 12. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. So you see that people in the city are getting saved by the preaching. That's one spiritual operation. That is, receive ye the Holy Ghost that we saw in John 20. But you see, it didn't stop there. Go to verse 14. Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who, when they were come down, prayed for them. They're praying for saved people, that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them. Only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. So you see two spiritual operations here. One, the people getting saved. And then two, with the laying on of hands, they are receiving the baptism of the Holy Ghost. When you go further on in the account, you see that the baptism involved the evidence of speaking with other tongues. And usually with the baptism, tongues is emphasized. Why? Because it's part and parcel of the baptism. But when you see that Jesus said, uh, when he said that we shall be endued with power from on high, he was talking about being witnesses in the earth of the gospel. And we saw that with Peter. All of a sudden, this guy who was in hiding is getting, on, getting out in the public square saying, listen to me. And then he goes into the preaching of the gospel to the Jews, which just days before he was hiding from. So you see the scriptural framework is salvation and the baptism are not one and the same. 
they are two separate experiences. One is, yes, you get to experience the kingdom of God. That is salvation. And that is necessary. We see that in John chapter 3. But then there is the second experience. That is the promise of the Father. And that is the baptism in the Spirit. And it's not just the ability to speak in tongues, which is great and which should be done. But it's also being the bold witness of the gospel that you see time and time again in the book of Acts. You never see in the book of Acts the disciples going back into hiding. You see that even in the face of persecution, they are preaching the gospel. Why? They have been baptized in the Spirit. All the believers in the book of Acts have been baptized in the Spirit, or we see the accounts of disciples being baptized in the Spirit. So, when it comes to just the original trajectory of the message, that was, well, many combined what salvation and the baptism as one and the same. They are not one and the same. So, if you have not been baptized in the Spirit, but you have been saved, then you need to get baptized the same way that the Samaritans were baptized in the Spirit. If you have been baptized in the Spirit, then you need to relish that experience. And in fact, you need to lean into it and walk in it because that involves boldness in witnessing. And you see that also in the book of Acts. Amen. So let me conclude with a benediction. The benediction is from Colossians. And listen to the benediction closely because you see that Paul prays that we understand the knowledge of God's will. And part of the knowledge of God's will is understanding this framework, understanding the scriptures, understanding the ways of the Lord, not just the acts of the Lord, but his ways. So let me pray the benediction for this cause, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to, de to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord and all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness always giving thanks unto the father which has made us meet to be partakers or sharers of the inheritance of the saints in light who has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? And we see that in John 20. He is the firstborn of receive ye the Holy Ghost. For by him were all things created, and that means new creations in Christ, that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. For he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Amen.